Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. A little girl's imagination grew strong in the wild English moors. As she got older, she tried to follow a conventional woman's path, but failure kept sending her back to her family and her country home. With her sisters by her side, Charlotte Bronte combined her imagination with the drama she had seen in her lifetime and introduced the world to a small, plain heroine who changed the face of literature. The end. Let's talk about Charlotte Bronte. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1816, French mathematician Sophie Germain became the first woman to win a prize from the Paris Academy of Science. The Barber of Seville debuted. Lady Byron asks for and receives a divorce from Lord Byron, her husband of only one year and the father of her infant daughter, Ada Lovelace. Thanks to a massive volcano erupting halfway around the world in Indonesia, New England and the United States experiences snow and frost in the summer months of June and July. The first double-decker steamboat makes his maiden voyage. James Monroe was elected the fifth president of the United States, and Indiana became the 19th U.S. state. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin wrote her breakthrough novel, Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, then married poet Percy Shelley. Queen Maria I of Portugal died, and in 1816, future author Charlotte Bronte was born. Charlotte Bronte was born on April 21st, 1816, in the village of Thornton in Yorkshire, England. She was the third of the six children of Reverend Patrick Bronte and his wife, Mariah Branwell Bronte. Papa was born in Ireland, the oldest of ten children in a poor, poor, poor family. The house where he grew up seems to be more like a crumbling hut or so he marketed himself. As we look further into his story, yes, he's the oldest of 10 children, but his father's house seems to be a big two-story stone house. Hmm. Hmm. He was allowed to stay in school longer than the other boys around him, which is odd, but was also apprenticed to a blacksmith and had no shoes. Which way do we jump? I don't know. (laughs) Um, uh, At 16... He opened his own school, which points to him being able to stay in school longer. Uh, Regardless of his actual upbringing, he was a motivated individual. He made it into Cambridge as um, a non-traditional student. He was 25 years old by the time he got there and was ultimately ordained by the church. Sometime between apprentice blacksmith and graduate of a major institution of learning, Patrick Brunty, or Prunty, or O'Branty, or Branty, became Bronte. And we would like to cover the issue of pronunciation right now. Oh my, there's a controversy about is it Bronte, which admittedly is the way I always pronounced it, or Bronte, which seems to be the way the family pronounced it. Dictionaries will largely point you toward Bronte. Merriam-Webster says, and I quote, when our research shows that an author's pronunciation of his or her name differs from common usage, the author's pronunciation is listed first. So we are stuck with Bronte. (laughs) Which has been a challenge. You know what sold me on it, though, was the names that he had before all ended with the E sound. And then I saw the name Zoe, Z-O-E with the umlaut on the top. And I was like, oh, that's pronounced Zoe, not Zoe. That's not an umlaut 
It's a diaresis. Oh, what's the difference? <laughs> An umlaut is a guide to pronunciation, and a diaresis just means the vowel that it's over is pronounced separately from the syllable before. It really doesn't give you any hints to pronunciation. Oh, here I sit corrected. I didn't even bother looking that up because in my head I'm like, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> oh, I didn't bother looking it up because I thought, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go. Oh, that's so funny. Well, to complicate things even further, we contacted the Bronte Parsonage Museum in Haworth and decided we would throw ourselves on their mercy for the correct pronunciation. <laughs> and I quote from the principal curator, in Haworth, the pronunciation was and still is Bronte. However, the pronunciation usually at use with staff at the museum is Bronte. Whichever you opt for will be fine. Best wishes. <laughs> So, my goodness, we had a choice to make. So here's where we're going to land on this. We decided to go with Bronte. And if we slip and say Bronte, know that we're still correct. <laughs> and so it's an all skate. Free to be you and me land. Use whichever you wish. They are both correct. As far as the authority figures are concerned. One thing that did for Patrick Bronte is provide a little um, social elevation. And also a distance from his Irish past. So um, with the fancier name, the gentleman went out into the world as an ordained minister for the church and began work, began his career. He had a very tangled affair and a respectable engagement that ended very badly with recriminations, broken hearts, and having to ghost her. So that's his whole romantic life up until now. After a series of clerical jobs, he met Mariah Branwell, the niece of a school friend, while he was proctoring a test at the friend's new school. Mariah Branwell was the eighth of nine children born into a fairly wealthy family in Cornwall. Her father was a luxury importer, although his fingers were in businesses all over town. Actually, the extended Bromwell family, which was very large, had their fingers in politics and investments all over town. The town could have been called Bronwell. However, they lived in Penzance. One of my favorites. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a coastal town. It's gorgeous. She grew up in an environment full of culture and art. Her life, if you want a picture, is very like a Jane Austen heroine, one of her more fortunate heroines. She improved her mind by extensive reading. She had very little to vex her, like Emma. She was doing fine. Until about the age of 17, when her father and then her mother both died. Now, all those siblings were spread out, but there were three daughters, Mariah and two of her sisters who were still unmarried. However, Papa had had the forethought to give an inheritance to all four of his daughters. So at the age of 17, Mariah is essentially a woman of means, living with her two sisters, making her own life decisions, and able to support herself, which was nice. However, the house that they lived in was owned by her uncle. Her uncle and his heir both died in a shipwreck. Hello, Downton Abbey. <laughs> My jaw dropped when I read that. And her youngest sister married the new heir. Hello, Mary Crawley. <laughs> 
And so um, that was her decision. But Mariah made a different decision for herself. She decided to go live with her aunt Jane and her family. They ran a school in Yorkshire. That's up in the northern part of England. It's kind of landlocked. So this is going to be a culture change for her. She's going to help by teaching at the school. When she and Papa met, there was a courtship that was, I want to say, true love, at least on his part. Yeah, there are some letters of hers to him that still exist. And she went from calling him dear friend in the letters to quickly changing it to my dear saucy Pat. <laughs> oh, my. Maybe that is a little more than we need to know about I Mama know. and Papa. <laughs> well, they were married within a year in a double wedding with one of her cousins where the grooms were both preachers and took turns during the ceremony being the groom and the officiant. There is one unfortunate thing that happened. Mama had asked her sister to pack her things and put them on a ship so she could get her clothes and her books and her papers and everything. The ship went down, the box was smashed, and um, my articles are swallowed up by the mighty deep, she said. So she really did go to her new life with nothing from her past life but what she had with her. I'm very sad that she lost all her things, all her mementos, all her, her wedding veil was in that box. She had to borrow a wedding veil. So it didn't really start out that auspiciously. And so they set up house. The family was moved to a new parish for them in a nearby village called Thornton. So ultimately, they had six children within the first eight years of their marriage. One, it seems, every year from 1814 on. Terrifying. I know. Other than that, this whole time in Thornton seems like um, a happy little subdivision montage because they're making friends. They're in the village. They're joining the literary society. There's laughing. There's barbecues. Okay, probably not actual barbecues, but that's the idea. It's like, seems like a, you know, community for them while they're in Thornton. I wish they had been able to stay. But when the curate died in a different parish, he was offered a job that gave him a significant pay raise from the 160 pounds a year he was getting then to 200 pounds a year. So that's a 25% increase just straight up. And for a man that has six children, it has to be a relatively easy decision. Yeah, and the house that they were going to, the new parsonage, was much larger than the one that they had been living in in Thornton. And they didn't know what was going to face them um, in society, and surely they could make new friends and it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Now, the place where they were going was a little full of conflict. People had just experienced the first vanguard of industrialization in that area. It was a textile production area, and a lot of people had been replaced by machinery was the first time any of that had happened and riots had broken out and there was unrest in the streets. So they were moving into <laughs> a little bit of a challenging situation. They were going from this genteel society to this laborer society and the laborers who weren't happy. They didn't have the neighbors that they'd had in Thornton. So it was time for the family to move and little baby Anne had just been born and Mama had had quite a bad time with her sixth pregnancy. But by all means, everyone get into these rattly old carts with no suspension and get on the 50 mile road to a new adventure. <laughs> like, uh, and it was a great undertaking. 
uh, took a long time to get to their new house. Haworth Parsonage. This is such a famous place now that maybe we should talk about it a little bit. Sure. It was a very large home, which was one of the appealing things about taking this position. He finally had room for all of his children, all of his family. The house was two stories. There was four massive rooms downstairs, three bedrooms and a small playroom and a guest room upstairs. There was a servant's room, plenty of space for this family to spread out. It sat at the top of a hill and overlooked the moors. I will say they had a two-hole privy, (laughs) which still makes me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) That's like upscale. That's moving on up. Oh, my goodness. And then no curtains at all, because Papa had this giant fear that they would catch on fire. All the windows, no curtains. Although I don't know who's looking in because the front yard, of course, since it is a parsonage, is tombs and tombstones. I guess you can't keep ghosts out with curtains, so. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'd be looking at the moors instead of the graveyard. And you know what? I know given the girls later works, this setting right in the middle of a cemetery seems to have 80s emoed up their writing, everyone (laughs) thinks. You should know that at the time Charlotte was living there, the women of the town traditionally used the cemetery as a giant drying rack on laundry day. So it's not as grim as it might be. (laughs) You've got undies hanging on all the crosses, you know. And behind the house, behind the house, the way that you would go if you were a little kid sent out to play, there's just wild moors. And if you've ever read a book called The Secret Garden, the moors are full of little baby animals and heather and and great smelling weeds and all kinds of things that little children would find interesting. So while the wind did get to piping and wailing around the house <laughs> in a stormy night, sure, most of the time it was kind of a tranquil place to be. Now, Haworth Village itself, you see it marketed as this tiny isolated village in the middle of nowhere. And it really did stand right in the middle of these three major textile production areas. So the market day was heavily attended. There were lots of even strangers going here and there. It's not Times Square. It's not New York City, but but neither is it Little House in the Big Woods either. Now, later in life, Charlotte would call Haworth, quote, a strange, uncivilized little place. That's pretty descriptive. They had neighbors, but they were, shall we say, salt of the earth. <laughs> and unlike their previous house, their neighbors were not necessarily fit to associate with in the same way. So they were lonely, but they were lonely because of snobbery and not because of proximity, if that makes any sense. Makes complete sense. I do love that the main street was so steep, they had to reinforce it with these long boards (laughs) so the horses would have something to step on. And in the winter, the horses actually had to wear boots or they couldn't get up the hill. So there you go. Maybe the wintertime, it came crashing down a little on the isolation. But this was actually fast becoming the industrialized North. And remember what we said about Chicago during the Jane Addams episode. Sometimes cities just don't know how to handle getting more population. The factory workers didn't live in great conditions any more than anywhere else. The infant mortality rate is shocking to me. Brace yourself for this total. 41% of kids died before their sixth birthday. Yeah, words fail me. Yeah. There weren't any sewers and everybody seemed to be drinking polluted water that was full of sewage and cow poo. I mean, some days even the cows wouldn't drink it. Life expectancy in general was 25. Welcome home, Brontes. (laughs) Luckily, you have your own well. So they escaped the immediate danger of cholera, etc. But life was short, let's say, in Haworth. 
Mariah had been weak since she had given birth to Anne, and that didn't stop just because she was in her new home in Haworth. She was getting weaker and weaker by the day. She was getting too weak to even get out of bed. Servants looked after the children. A nurse was called in to care for her, but everybody had to creep around really quietly when they were in the house. You can't wake up mama. Well, and Papa was in dire straits. He wrote to a friend that he was a stranger in a strange land. So he was in a village, but he had no village. You know, he mm-hmm. he was away from everyone he knew, all the friends that could have helped. And as poor as they were, they had two regular servants in the house and the nurse that had been brought in. So that always boggles my mind that people were struggling, struggling, but yet they maintained servants. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. There were six children and all six of them had scarlet fever at one point. He needed help. This was not a really hands-on parent to begin with. So his whole family would have died right in front of him at that point if he hadn't brought somebody in. Historians think Mama probably had ovarian cancer, possibly even exacerbated by her poor recovery after Anne's birth. She was never the same again. She went downhill, and I'm very sorry to say that Mariah Branwell Bronte died with her six little children around her bed when Charlotte was only six years old. So Papa's first thought was to remarry, and he sent out feelers here and there, even brace yourself to the woman who he had broken his engagement with earlier to marry Mariah in the first place. Can you see getting that letter, lady persons? (laughs) Her response was tart. Like, nah, let's just put it that way. Um, Somehow, no one wanted to take on a poor 47-year-old curate with six children. You know, I don't know why. It was beginning to look like he was going to have to separate his family to send them here and there until Aunt Elizabeth Branwell, Mama's sister, agreed to move to the parsonage to bring up the children and manage the house. And Elizabeth was a lot like Mama. She was a woman of letters, of education, even of property. Remember, Mama had actually had enough money and station to be living a pretty comfortable life as a single woman, although in a relative's house. If she hadn't married for love, she might have been okay. Well, Aunt Elizabeth chose to put aside her own relatively comfortable existence and come up to Haworth for a different kind of life for the memory of her sister and to take care of her nieces and nephew. And I am 100% sure history is full of these unsung heroines. So let's raise a glass to people who didn't have to step in, but did, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is the sound of me raising a glass. Clink. <laughs> so the house settled into sort of a routine. Lessons with Papa in the morning, sewing in the early afternoon with Aunt Branwell, a very long recess, like get out of this house, <laughs> all six of you. Dinner, lessons, bedtime, lessons included, which is curious to me, news of the day, politics, book reviews. They started to fall in love with the adventures of the Duke of Wellington. He became a very strong figure in their life. And he was the one they based all their adventures on. In modern days, it might have been Star Wars or something that you got obsessed with. Harry Potter, for example. But then they had the Duke of Wellington. (laughs) Who was actually a real person. Yes. Which is the difference between him and Star Wars. So the Duke of Wellington uh, beat Napoleon at Waterloo. That's his giant claim to fame. Also, curiously, as I was letting her story meet mine, Wellington is the name of the town in Kansas where my mother grew up, and that is named after the Duke of Wellington. How about that? So his homages transcend the centuries and the miles. I never looked this up. Beef Wellington, just in honor, or did he create it? 
Hmm. I'm guessing he's not a cooking man. No. Was it created for him, like in his lifetime? I guess is the question I'm asking. Hmm. No, but I do like the mushroom part. (laughs) Well, so the six kids were their own baby gang, like you do. In the nice weather, they could roam on the moor, the world's largest backyard of history, and just mess around in a way that I used to. I'm not sure kids just get sent outside anymore. It sure develops your imagination, for one thing, if you're sent outside with no toys. (laughs) Definitely. And all those rolling hills and rocks and what a perfect place to have a great imagination, which these kids all did. So I would actually like to hold off on the indoor amusements for a second. I want to talk a tiny bit about a dark chapter in the Bronte kids' lives for just a second. He, Papa was very anxious about his children's futures, especially he has five daughters and he's not going to be able to leave them anything. The house doesn't even belong to him. It goes with the job. You know, let's face it, the daughter of a poor curate was going to have to rely completely on her personal charms if she wanted to follow the traditional career you know, husband and children. There'd be no dowry to sweeten the deal, no property, no position, no title. It was too uncertain. What were they going to do? Walk down the hill and work in the factories, the mills? It's just unthinkable. So the Bronte girls in an uncomfortably in between class. They're too low to be high and too high to be low. Mm -hmm. The only possible respectable future for them, unless they got married, was as governesses. So he decided that the girls were going to have to be sent to school and get credentials so that they could be hired as governesses in the future. And so the two oldest sisters were sent off very briefly to a boarding school that costs Papa 25% of his income just to send the two daughters. It didn't last long. He couldn't afford to keep it up. But then he saw an ad for a school for clergymen's daughters, specially created to serve his exact problem. That does not come up very often. (laughs) No, it must have seemed like, you know, a sign from God himself. Look at this is a perfect situation. So the sisters were again sent off to boarding school, 10-year-old Mariah and 9-year-old Elizabeth, 8-year-old Charlotte and 6-year-old Emily. So there are four girls at what on paper is this perfect situation. In reality, it wasn't. The man who ran the school, the Reverend William Wilson, thought that his job was to teach these future sinners how to not tempt men with evil. That was his job? I thought they were going to learn to be governesses. No, they got their hair chopped off. Can't be vain at all. There was very little heat. There was even less edible porridge. The food supply was nominal and it was horrible. On top of it, they were beaten with sticks for infractions like having a dirty fingernail. Yeah, if you've read Jane Eyre, you kind of know what we're facing here because the unbelievably horrible Lowood School in Jane Eyre was based on this school. Constant humiliation reminded often that these children were dependent on the patrons of the school for the very air they breathed, you know. Mm -hmm. Gosh, you give power to the wrong people and it just really gets out of control. Poor little Charlotte had a bad time, but her oldest sister Mariah was her rock, all of theirs. I guess, really, the oldest daughter often takes on such responsibility. She was so strong and encouraging and just patient. And the older sister I never was. (laughs) Uh, Though maybe in adversity, these qualities would have come out. Sorry, everybody. But um, (laughs) Mariah saved everyone's reason. Let's focus on the positive instances of older sisterdom. That is why... It is particularly cruel of the universe that Mariah got sick about a year after they got there. So sick with consumption that Papa had to come fetch her to take her home where she died at age 11. 
Elizabeth had come down with exactly the same thing, consumption, which of course we know as tuberculosis. At that point, he also brought Charlotte and Emily home. But unfortunately, once they all got there, Elizabeth also died. So Papa had lost two daughters to death and now had Charlotte and Emily scarred for life after their experiences there. We can safely call this a failed experiment. Uh, Yes. Well, back at home, the four remaining children were given sort of free reign of the bookshelves. He said, you can read whatever you like. Go for it. And they did. From the Bible to Homer's Iliad. And Papa brought home books on science and history. And they subscribed to a traveling library. And they got hold of fairy tales. And And of course, our old friend Pilgrim's Progress. This was a big deal around this time. Yeah, it's um like an allegorical tale of a man's journey through life. In the book, it's an actual journey where he's traveling somewhere, but it's supposed to be a man aging, you know. The kids also were very into poetry. They loved it. They absorbed it. William Wordsworth and Lord Byron. Yes, that's right. The Parsons children memorized Byron's poems. Now, this is a man who not only was an atheist, but he lived a life that was so bad that he was denied burial in Westminster Abbey. But yeah, okay, kids, read his poetry, which Charlotte absolutely loved. She liked his style, his humor, and she liked kind of, she didn't use this word, but the sexiness of his poetry. Little Charlotte. (laughs) I think, yeah, you can see the echoes of their early exposure to uh, PG-13 and our material in their future work, I think. Oh, yeah. If they had been as sheltered as regular girls, we would never have Wuthering Heights. We would never have Jane Eyre. You know, so much of their formative years was spent trying to make sense of things that were kind of adult themes. So... The irony is that he burned all of his wife's magazines. There was ladies magazines because they had romance stories in them. He didn't want his daughters reading. So that's like the one thing they were prohibited from reading was ladies magazines. That's funny. Yeah. Rich soup. Rich store material. Let's let that percolate. Now we're going to practice with it. Their brother, Branwell, had been given a set of toy soldiers. And each of his sisters claimed a couple of them because when one kid gets something, everybody's got to have some of it. They named him things like Sneaky and Waiting Boy and Gravy and... The Duke of Wellington, Charlotte, made sure that he was represented with a soldier. So they had the 3D world where they were playing with the soldiers. And then they had kind of like the documentation of their world. There were a couple of fully formed worlds. Let's start with Glass Town. That's the first world they started. Let's kind of think of it as like Young and the Restless. Every day there'd be a little chapter for their stories and they'd write it and then they'd act it. Full of battles and just intrigue, like Game of Thrones kind of. (laughs) You know, romance and magic and exotic settings. They got their geography book out and found the craziest names or the exotic places they could come and they wrote all over this geography book. I do that too. If the book is mine, you've all seen how I treat my books. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the book itself was not sacred. They used it as a tool for their imagination. So I love that, actually. They would also write these little stories. And I say little as in size. They were tiny. The covers were made of sugar wrappers. There was scrap paper, pieces of wallpaper that they tore off. They would stitch them together into these tiny little books, maybe a couple inches tall. And then with the tiniest of letters, they would write their stories out in these books. 
tiny, like two inches high by one and a half inches across. And they used this tiny writing that was almost like printing, which Papa and Aunt Elizabeth couldn't even read because they did not have uh, lens crafters to make them reading glasses. So um, (laughs) they felt free to explore also in their books violence and romance in a way they might have been discouraged to do if they were being monitored in any way. Well, there were natural children, murder, poisoning, kidnapping. Later, all of this turned into um, Charlotte and Branwell kind of branched out into the tales of Angria. And um, they kept writing this story well into their 20s. The main character of the Tales of Angria is this man named the Duke of Zamorna, who reminds me a lot of Mr. Rochester from Jane Eyre. He started out as a codename for the Duke of Wellington, but he soon took on a life of his own. Piratical and Uh heroic and dark and... Uh, Emily and Anne moved on to their own little story collection called Gondal. And I think most of Gondal has disappeared. I don't think we have too much Gondal. No, I would have loved to have known about it. It was a Pacific island. How lovely, how exotic for kids from England to come up with. So in these little tiny books, there were often maps and illustrations to go along with the text. It was a very intricate and well-researched project. It's almost like the prototype of project-based learning. They brought every bit of knowledge they had about the world to bear on their own work. I thought that was great. All of this glorious creativity could have been Charlotte's whole life if only her circumstances had been different. You know, Mm -hmm. you could be as intelligent and well-read as you wanted, but no one's going to hire you as a governess unless you had credentials from a bona fide school. So at 14, Papa sent Charlotte 20 miles away to the Rowhead School. And I can imagine her trepidation after her horrible experience before, but this school was a different sort of market. It was for rich man's daughters. So you dare not oppress people who are paying customers, you know? Uh, I don't know how Papa afforded it, but this was really his best toss at preparing Charlotte to stand on her own two feet. So little Charlotte arrives. She's not outgoing by nature. She's been burned by her experiences and she's missing the pace and the lack of structure that she had at her house. She did her own learning. She was self-educated, but she lacked structure. And suddenly she's going to this very structured environment. Fortunately, the head of the school, Miss Wooler, took her under her wing and saw that Charlotte needed a little extra pampering. She started out a little socially awkward. You know, I have to say, this is the first time she'd really been aware of her appearance, which at 14, we all know is all important. Mm -hmm. But her classmates described her as a little old woman with spectacles and old-fashioned clothes peering at them over the edge of a book. She had never hung out with anyone except her brothers and sisters and. You know, now that Mariah and Elizabeth were gone, she's the boss of the baby gang like right. at home. <laughs> yeah. And so she gets here and there's no bossing at all. However, by virtue of the school not being very big, there were only 10 people in her year, too small for clicks, kind of. Charlotte became kind of a favorite. She was a good storyteller. She was an interesting person once you got to know her. You just had to let her trust you and she would open mm. up like a flower. And she made a couple of friends who stayed with her, at least by letter, for the rest of her life. And in that, she was unique among her brothers and sisters. Ellen Nussie and Mary Taylor were her two 
best friends. And they really supported her and took her home on the weekends and exposed her to a life that she never would have seen had she not met them. They were very different. Mary was academically about the same level as Charlotte, which was top of the class. She was a little more aggressive. Ellen was more nurturing and kind. Ellen was the more conventional. She's the daughter of a nearby cloth manufacturer, the suburban friend, let's just say. (laughs) Mary Taylor was the daughter of this intellectual radical. I mean, their household was exciting. People argued. They thumped books on the table and lived a life of society and culture. And when Charlotte got exposed to especially that house, um, man, her mind took flight. And then the Nussies lived at a house called Writings, which is this grand manor, which was the later inspiration for Thornfield Hall in Jane Eyre. These are not your average school friends. These opened up the world of at least the upper middle class to her. So it was a nice little trio. And then, and then there's Little, literally Little. She's like 4'10". Charlotte Bronte is only 4'10". She's nearsighted. She can't see enough to play the piano, for instance. But she can see in the dark, which is fascinating, not only to me, but to all these little girls that are meeting her, that she can read when there's barely any light. How does that happen? I can't, I couldn't figure that out. Because you practice with one candle or the fireplace when you don't have money. Oh, good point. And to make things even more uh, different, she had an Irish accent. Now here we are in England. She was born and raised in England, but her father was Irish. So she had an Irish accent. So that must have made her stand out just a little bit different too. Well, here's the thing. Charlotte was so smart top of her class, that she burned through the curriculum very quickly. And after only a year and a half, she was done. And family expectations came down on her like a suffocating blanket and not one of those cool new weighted blankets that are cozy and nice. (laughs) Having invested in Charlotte's education to the extent that he did, Papa fully expected Charlotte to come home and teach her sisters what she had learned. And also, while you're here, we just opened a Sunday school. So why don't you teach that too? And her days just took on this humdrum routine, which you felt was stifling her with no end in sight. Years of this stretching out ahead of her after this one brief foray into the wider world. How are you going to keep them down on the farm when they've seen the lights of the big city or however that went? You know, (laughs) now she's discontented. Her lack of opportunities became so much a part of her that years later, all of this appeared in Jane Eyre. And she wrote this in Jane Eyre. Women feel just as men feel. They need exercise for their faculties and a field for their efforts as much as their brothers do. They suffer from too rigid a restraint, precisely as men would suffer. So she was going to have to do something for herself. But what? Poetry, mostly. That refuge of the person whose feelings are suppressed. Working on the tales of Angria, in which she and Branwell competed with each other for spectacle. This reminds me at this point in her life when she's so angry of the daily volcano in Little Women. Speaking of another Little Women reference. Like there's shipwrecks and any number of poorly executed spy missions and all kinds of stuff like that. (laughs) And so here is an aspect of Charlotte Bronte that might be news to you. She is an astonishingly good artist. Everybody took drawing lessons and Charlotte must have really paid attention or had some natural talent. Two of her pen and ink drawings especially blow me away. She copied these pictures of two abbeys and they were so good that they were exhibited in the Royal Northern Society's art exhibit. I mean, they were hanging on the wall for the public to see. 
Her portraits of Anne, her portraits of some of her students, they show a real natural talent. She's not the only Bronte with natural ability. Branwell actually painted the most famous picture of the Bronte sisters. Maybe the only mental image most of us even have of Charlotte Bronte. Though, I have to say, his clumsy erasing of himself in the middle is pretty irritating. <laughs> it to looks me. like in, in Star Trek when the they got beamed up. Beam me up, Scotty. Woo-y. I mean, he's still sort of there. Something else irritating is the sisters were given drawing lessons. Maybe even fan yourself watercolor. But it was only Branwell, the boy, who was given advanced techniques. You know, mentors, painting Mm -hmm. in oil. I mean, I see it. I do. A man had a chance to earn a living at portrait painting. And for his daughters, it could only be a hobby. I think that's what he was thinking, playing the odds. But still, it rankles. And I'm sure contributed to that, I want to say medium friendly rivalry, low to medium, medium rare (laughs) rivalry between Branwell and Charlotte. They both wanted the same things. And it was only Branwell who really had a shot. Branwell, he was taking some of his poetry and bringing it to his favorite magazines and saying, you should run my poems. And they don't. Flat out rejected. That's the life of an artist. But that's something that Charlotte is not experiencing quite yet. Yeah, I think he had a little bit of unrealistic expectations, kind of like somebody that starts an Instagram and assumes they're going to be an influencer right away. He just assumed, (laughs) well, the world's been waiting for these poems. And here they are. And the world was not really down with that. So (laughs) he was actually talking excitedly about going on his grand tour of Europe. And there's no money for that. There's no money for that. I, he's just unrealistic. I think his his expectations were too high. Maybe he was hanging out with richer friends than he or had been exposed to some things and he was just full of, of envy and he wanted naturally. I mean, it's very natural. You want the nice things of life, but I think he just didn't feel like he needed to work for it at all. So Mm. that's kind of where he is, I guess, right now. So in fact, Charlotte herself was sort of forced to take a position back at her old high school to begin earning a living. And she took Emily with her. I guess you can take a discounted student if you're staff. Mm -hmm. So while Branwell squandered his advantages by not even making it to art school, because I think he was drinking up all his money, Mm -hmm. Charlotte just hated every second of her new enforced lifestyle. Emily had a nervous breakdown at school and was sent home. Was it the previous schooling experience? Was she just very introverted? Was she just agoraphobic? I don't know, but Emily could not take it and was sent home to be replaced with Anne. And there was no such relief for Charlotte. She could have a nervous breakdown all she wants. She had to stay at school and teach. Yeah. Getting back to Emily, I read some speculation. It's purely speculative that she suffered from Asperger's syndrome. So she wasn't really good at reading social cues. I'll link you up to the article I read, but it kind of broke it down. Like all these things that she was doing were all things that someone on the autism spectrum would be experiencing. But just like we say about medical issues, it's impossible diagnose someone from here. But um, nevertheless, that's an interesting thing to speculate about. Mm -hmm. Charlotte had said about Emily, quote, liberty was the breath of Emily's nostrils. Without it, she perished. So Emily needed to be back at home, you know, running in the moors, playing with her dogs, being by herself. Well, and here's Charlotte 
equally as despairing. Her friends are writing to her about their adventures in the big wide world. And Charlotte writes back to them, My mind is exhausted and dispirited. It's a stormy evening, and the wind is uttering a continual moaning sound that makes me feel very melancholy. I'm weary with the day's hard work, during which an unusual degree of stupidity has been displayed by my promising pupils. (laughs) She called them dolts. Like, that's the actual word she's used in other sources. She did not like being a teacher. She did not like kids, which is a problem. She didn't like being penned in there. She just wanted to do what she wanted to do. And unfortunately, she couldn't. God, this even sounds so despairing. The thought came over me. Am I to spend all the best part of my life in this wretched bondage, forcibly suppressing my rage? (laughs) (laughs) This is the quote that I pulled out from all of her writing. Must I from day to day sit chained to this chair, prisoned within these four walls while these glorious summer suns are burning? Oh, I can feel that one. I was reading that on a day that I wanted to be outside gardening. like, yes, I feel you, Charlotte. 18-year-old Charlotte was brave. You know what? Better to aim high and miss and then aim low and hit. So there's nothing to lose. I'm going to write a letter to the poet laureate of England. (laughs) And I'm going to ask him, what should I do to advance my career in literature? I enclose some of my poems. Love you. Love your show, etc. And he actually wrote her back. But it was the most dampening advice. He told her literature cannot be the business of a woman's life, and it ought not be. The more she's engaged in proper duties, the less leisure she will have for it, even as an accomplishment and a recreation. So he's saying, don't write. You're a woman. It's bad for everyone if you write. She did write him back. First time I read this, I was like, oh, she's like taking his words to heart. And then the second time I read it, I was like, oh, maybe she's being sarcastic. I trust I shall never more feel ambitious to see my name in print. If the wish should rise, I'll look at this letter and suppress it. She wrote on the letter, so the advice to be kept forever, like on the outside of the envelope. (laughs) The sibling rivalry between Charlotte and Bronwell, he also decided to aim high and sent some of his letters to William Wordsworth, who didn't even write back. At least she got an answer back. I'm still <laughs> waiting for that answer from Bo Duke from 1977. <laughs> so sometimes your heroes don't write you back. So Charlotte did not let a little dismissal by the uppers deter her from writing. She filled notebooks with poetry anyway. So take that. Charlotte stuck it out until she was 22 and had left school after an illness. So she wasn't subsidizing an education anymore. And by Christmas, she was like, I'm done. And she moved back home. And soon, our heroine received her first proposal. Her friend Ellen had a brother who was in want of a wife. And Henry Nussie was 27. He he was a new curate. And he was going through his list of potential wives, kind of like Papa Patrick had done. And he got to Charlotte's name on his list and sent her a letter asking for her hand in marriage. Now, she had met him before, but just briefly. And she was his little sister's friend. Okay, so he was turned down twice by his first choice. Then Mm -hmm. Charlotte gets to the mail and like, huh, random. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Basically, I need someone to help me in my missionary work. Like out of the blue, you get this letter. Yeah. And so maybe we're looking at St. John Sinjin, as some say, in Jane Mm -hmm. Eyre, the cousin that was like, I need a help me. You'll do. She did write him back and she was nicer than I think I would have been. And she said, I have no personal repugnance to the idea of a union with you. but." Basically, I don't love you. You you don't love me. I'm not the woman that will make you happy. Find somebody else. And I 
thought that was very nice. And, you know, this does seem cold to me, all this whole, I need a wife and so I will choose you. But I wonder, I mean, a lot of these seem so much like a business transaction. Mm-hmm. Kind of you're trading yourself for a little security in your old age because if your papa dies, then what? You yeah. know? But her reaction to this shows that even though marriage was really her only insurance, not everyone grasped at any old life raft. Mm-hmm. But they did, I will say, write letters to each other for a couple of years afterward. So it seems, though, over the course of the several years that Henry never really fully despaired that she would change her mind. And she would write to Ellen these things like, if only he knew how I was at home. He sees me in company when I'm all polite, but I think he'd be horrified. And like, she would say things like, don't tell Henry, you know, that I said that. (laughs) Ha ha, you know. Because it would really shock him. So until he got married himself, he kind of kept up with the correspondence. So there's that. I'm glad she had a little bit of flirtation. Although she did. I think she was treating it more like a exercise in controlling <laughs> someone, but whatever. So Charlotte hated teaching in the school so much. So in classic frying pan into the fire mistakery, she took a job as a governess in a private house and felt like her spirit was crushed out of her. She was the avocado in the mortar and pestle getting crushed into goo. She hated it. It's a weird place to be a governess. You know, you're some gentleman's daughter, so the men of the house can't treat you exactly like a scullery maid. But, huh, what do I do? Because <laughs> she's not a lady either. And then the ladies of the house, and this is my theory, is that they look at the governess, who is some gentleman's daughter, and think there before the grace of God go I. The only thing women of gentle breeding could do to survive if their men let them down was be a governess. So like, thank goodness my husband is young. Thank goodness I have nine brothers, whatever it is, you know, saving them from being a governess was just a luck of the draw. And I think they just felt so like, I don't even know. It was almost like bullies. They mm-hmm. love to pick on a governess. And this one, I think, was kind of surprising to Charlotte because she knew the wife before she was a missus and they knew each other. They were friendly. But as soon as she walked into her door as the governess, that was not you know, even part of the conversation. Yeah. I would be surprised and shocked and disappointed. So again, Charlotte resented having to pander to these stupid fatheads who were just richer. They're not better. They're not smarter. And her former friend... Fully expect her to do other duties if she wasn't busy. Darn the household's socks, for example. And meanwhile, these, quote, pampered, spoilt, turbulent children were just dumped on her. So shocking. She had no one to talk to because the servants resented her superior attitude, which could be her fault or could just be the governess equals superior attitude and had nothing to do with Charlotte, you know? Mm-hmm. So one good thing came out of this gig. During her very short tenure as the governess to this family, they made a visit to a country house and she heard of a legend of a mad woman that was shut up in the attic of a nearby house. And um, everyone loved to tell the tale of the screams that would ring through the upper floors and this and that. And so this horrible, hellish chapter of her life gave the world one good thing. Fans of Jane Eyre, you'll know what that is. She lasted about a year before she's like, bag this and went home, where she fielded a second proposal of marriage from a man who came to tea, met her once, and proposed. Mm, No.
She had one more short fling as a governess. This is just not her destiny. Might as well try, but no. (laughs) Her friend, Mary Taylor, not on purpose, was taunting her with her fabulous travelogue from Europe. I mean, Mary Taylor on Instagram. Follow my progress. It was so irritating. (laughs) It was time for something bold. And so Charlotte presented a plan to Aunt Branwell, who had agreed to finance a school for her nieces to run. But what if, Aunt Branwell, you instead send us to Europe to study French and Italian, and then when we come back, we can charge more when we start our school? Emily and I. Does that sound cool, please? (laughs) I don't think she was fooled, by the way. But Aunt Branwell said yes. I mean, where's my Aunt Branwell? Uh, Also, poor Anne didn't get to go. Well, anyway, so they pitched up with Papa at the Chapter Coffee House, which was bombed in the Blitz in World War II. So it's not there anymore. That's a bummer. There's an alley. Mm. And they spent three glorious days exploring London before their ship left. And Charlotte wrote, I had a sudden feeling as if I, who had never yet truly lived, were at last about to taste life. She felt awesome. And Emily and Charlotte landed at the Pensionnat Heger in Brussels. And Madame was the director of the school where they were, but it was Monsieur who we should look at for a moment. Charlotte wrote, when he's very ferocious with me, I cry. And then that sets things straight so she could manipulate him. But he was mean to her. (laughs) Stern, maybe, in a way. Papa seems like he's kind of absent-minded, kind of. Like, oh, now, now. That seems like Papa mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, Whereas yeah, yeah. Mr. Heger was like, you must edit. Your work is shit, you know? <laughs> so then she would cry and then he'd feel bad and then they'd get along, you know? Yeah, but that was so important. He was really refining her writing skills and she was brushing up on her German and her French and, you know, taking classes. So it was a good thing, ultimately. Well, he was what he was teaching her. So what I should say is Emily and Monsieur got together like chalk and cheese. Uh, she'd walk in a room. If he was there, she'd leave. She hated the ground he walked on. Chalk and cheese? <laughs> yeah. You've never heard that expression? <laughs> no. Wow, that's two of them. <laughs> no, I've never heard that. Oh, that's very common. In fact, one of my son's favorite books was called The Tales of Chalk and Cheese, and it was like a dog and a mm, I don't know a mouse or something and they were trying to go through New York City and they weren't enjoying the same things but they discovered they were really friends in the end anyway uh, no I've never now there might be the same conversation you know from five or six years ago where me going I never heard that before but uh, I never heard that before <laughs> well well okay there you go officially chalk and cheese maybe we're chalk and cheese we're not though because we have no. a lot more in common we're cheese and a broiler I'm probably the broiler. (laughs) She's just melted all over the place. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, uh, poor Aunt Branwell back home in England died. And she left the Bronte sisters and one of their girl cousins all her money, which was not enough to blow out at the mall or whatnot, but kind of eased the pressure of constantly having to earn a living. Mm -hmm. I think it came out to about... $10,000 in modern money for each of them, which was, you know, it was a nice little cushion. So Monsieur, back in Brussels, wrote a note asking for one of the Brontes to come back to Brussels to teach. And it's pretty apparent he did not want Emily. 
<laughs> Emily's all like, I hate that guy. Never want to mince words or Emily. But Charlotte was all about it. And over the course of the next year in which she taught at his school, she found herself in love, one-sided love, in a way that you only get, I think, when you're a teenager. You know, that just all-consuming, the object of your affection is glowing with the radiance of the, you know, sun, and every word that drips out of his mouth is golden, and it, with care. <laughs> like, the unhealthy, unrequited kind of love. From his point of view, though, he saw her as a brilliant young woman, and he was excited by her progress and her intelligence and the work that she was creating. So I can easily see how Charlotte would misinterpret that as romantic feelings. Heck, he even gave her a piece of Napoleon's coffin. I mean, if that isn't a token of affection, I don't know what is. I don't know. All I do know is that Madame's face was a happy face with a straight line for a mouth. Yeah. Madame was not down with this relationship. Even if it was very innocent, it didn't look good. Well, even when she got back home, Charlotte's thoughts kind of stayed in Brussels. She was just in love. And the sisters tried kind of in a haphazard way to start a school, like they said to Aunt Branwell they were going to do from the parsonage. And they advertised and they got exactly zero inquiries. <laughs> Fortunately, Aunt Branwell wasn't there to see that. Right, right. Yeah. So there was no motivation for them to keep going. So Charlotte wrote these heartfelt letters to Monsieur that he kept for a long time. Later, after her death, he tore them up in order to, I don't know, preserve reputation and throw them away. But Madame jigsawed them back together and sewed them. And now they were on display at the British Library. So if not for the suspicious nature of Madame, we would never know the secret romantic life of Charlotte Bronte. He never answered a one of these letters, though. To his credit, question mark? <laughs> he never answered one. It was definitely a one-sided romance. Well, I'm thinking that Madame made her feelings known. Ah. And she could see letters coming into the house, I would assume. I mean, she's the admin of the school. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Troublesome. I don't think he did anything wrong, but I also think he did not do a lot to make the appearance of it all innocent. Yes. That's all I'm saying about that. Well, Charlotte seems to have had a giant crisis as she turned 30. Many people do. Uh, I've accomplished nothing. You know, I had all this potential and I've wasted it. It's natural for humans to want to make your mark, whatever kind of mark. She wrote, I feel as if we are all buried at Haworth. Anne had come home unexpectedly from her long-term post as governess. Branwell came home from the same household because he was having an affair with the lady of the house. Oh. Which is probably why Anne came home, too. Yeah, she never did say it was just a falling out of some sort. But, you know, you're the man. You find your wife in bed with a guy. He and his sister must leave. I mean, it's common sense. Well, Emily had left um, a long time ago from Brussels, of course, and she decided her role was to be the housekeeper now that Anne Branwell was dead. So she was dug in in that role. And so basically no chicks had flown the nest. Everybody was home. Now, was Charlotte snooping or maybe Emily left out a journal somewhere, but Charlotte read some of Emily's poetry. She said she just kind of happened upon them. I don't know. I'm saying she was snooping. She mm -hmm. was looking for something. She found this. At, I mean, maybe she was going to borrow a pair of stockings or something. You know, she found this writing. Emily was pretty secretive. I don't think Emily would have left it out for mm -hmm. her to find. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't seem in her personality. 
But when Charlotte read this poetry, she said, they stirred my heart like the sound of a trumpet. They were so good. So she concocted a scheme. I think we should publish a volume of our poetry. The Three Sisters who would use pseudonyms because they had, <laughs> she said, a vague, a vague notion that authoresses are liable to be looked on with prejudice. Still, J.K. Rowling, for example. Mm. <laughs> so they made some pseudonyms that seem male-ish. They seem neuter to me. Acton, Currer, and Ellis. They don't exactly seem that masculine to me, but. Well, I think that was the point was to come up with names that shared their original, like the first initial of their name. So Charlotte was Currer and Emily was Ellis and Anne was Acton. But to come up with kind of gender neutral sounding names. Okay. Well, it worked. And then they took as their last name Bell, which was the middle name of Papa's new assistant curate, Arthur Bell Nichols, or it could have been the sound of bells, which seems like a stretch. It's only four letters. There's no weird accent on it. Or it could have been an elision of the name Branwell because they left Branwell out of this scheme. He had become a loose cannon by now. He was deeply into the drink and um, spent his time honestly wailing out loud and drawing lurid cartoons and hanging out with people at the bar and in general not being a very productive member of the household. In fact, his presence often terrified everyone and made home a very uncool place to be hanging out. Yeah, he really disrupted the quiet of the parsonage. So back to the project, Charlotte handled all the correspondence with publishers. Ultimately, they published at what was called Author's Risk, which now would be called what? Vanity Publishing? It cost about a tenth of their inheritance to get this book published, by the way. It was called Poems. It's a very clever title. <laughs> it was about 165 pages. There were 61 poems total in it, and it was pretty much divided evenly between the three of them. So the book's really beautiful. It's dark blue cloth. It has this black design on it. It doesn't look cheap at all. Golden letters. And the publisher sold two copies. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. Now, they did get a really good review. The reviewer said it was good, wholesome, refreshing, vigorous poetry. Charlotte was not daunted. I think that the mere fact of an actual physical book mm -hmm. really changed her mind, made her so excited. And so she sent copies to prominent people as presentation gifts. I will tell you the first edition... One of these sold at Sotheby's for about 70,000 pounds, which is a 2,000% return on investment <laughs> if you wait long enough. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, right back on the horse, Charlotte wrote to the publishers, the Bells are now preparing for the press, a work of fiction consisting of three distinct and unconnected tales, which you might publish together or separately. Like, oh, might we? Oh, yeah. Well, that was actually a trend at the time. I, Charlotte, I don't know that she gets enough credit for her understanding of the world of publishing at this time. I think she was rather brilliant at it. At the time, there was a trend in publishing to publish things in three volumes so that they could sell three different books. They could be serialized. So if you read the first one, you have to read the second and then the third and you have to buy each one. Right. Right. Yeah, so I, I thought it was brilliant. But again, written by Kerr, Acton, and Ellis. Ultimately, after a year of rejections. So you know what, writers? Keep going. 
because even Harry Potter was rejected by over 10 publishers. I don't know the exact number. Ultimately, a publisher agreed to take Wuthering Heights by Ellis Bell and Agnes Gray by Acton Bell, but not The Professor by Carver Bell. It was a blow. It was horrible. She'd been the driving force behind all of this. And of all of them, psych, we don't like yours. <laughs> Frick. Okay, so Charlotte didn't let this get her down. I mean, of course she cried. This sucks. It does <laughs> suck. Because, you know, you lose face in your own house, too. Crap. But what she did was get up again after she fell. And she took poor old Papa to get cataract surgery in 1847, y'all. Maybe he had ether as general anesthesia. We're looking at the first couple of years of ether. No, he didn't. He actually said that he felt everything and it was like it wasn't pain as much as it was a burning sensation. This surgery, you know, where they remove the lens that's become cloudy. It's usually a person that's over 40 that this happens to had been around for almost 100 years. That's a long time. I mean, it wasn't like a brand new surgery. Well, my heart goes out to Papa anyway. No. Oh, I don't like to think about that. No, in the recuperative time, I mean, he had to lay down for two weeks before he could even sit up. He had a nurse with him and she put leeches on the side of his face to control the swelling. Love that medicine. Although they're using leeches again and maggots. I'm not even joking. Wait, Be- maggots? Mm-hmm. For? Cleaning out wounds because they only eat diseased skin. They don't eat healthy skin. Oh. I know. It's like sometimes folk medicine makes sense. Uh most of the time it doesn't. <laughs> I don't understand how leeches like would work because they, they suck, suck out all the blood. They suck out. The, uh, yeah. And then okay. you discard them and replace with fresh hungry fresh ones. Leeches. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite leech story, though, has got to be Nellie Olson from the TV show in the 70s where she's making fun of Laura for living in the country and they trick Nellie Olson into getting into the pond and her legs get covered with leeches and then everyone <laughs> screams and runs away. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Leeches are the hero. So anyway, back to the story at hand. Luckily for Papa, back home he had an assistant, that curate, who proved to be a rock. And this guy was maybe the responsible son figure Papa had always hoped Branwell might have been and never was. So stuff at home was going fine. But... While Papa had to be recovering in a dark room, Charlotte, with her night vision, was filling her notebooks with a new story that she wrote quite like a woman possessed. It just emerged from her, she said. Just in a month or two, it all came out. It almost wrote itself. And she sent this new novel, Jane Eyre, it was called, to a publisher who had rejected her book, The Professor, but this publisher had taken the time to sort of detail their criticism Mm-hmm. You know, and give her encouragement. I'm sorry this doesn't serve our needs, but we would love to see whatever you come up with next. And she's like, okay, Chach, you literally asked for it. <laughs> I happen to have this novel right here. Charlotte and her sisters had had this long running discussion. Charlotte didn't believe that heroines needed to be beautiful. She thought that just being interesting was enough to be the heroine of a romance story. She said that they could be as plain and small as myself and still be the heroine of the story. And that's the story that Charlotte wrote in the dark while her father was healing. So I don't know. Are you familiar with Jane Eyre? Surely we all are by now. I actually think we were, quote, forced to read it all in high school. But for those of you who might not know, here's the very short version. An unloved, plain, 
young girl named Jane Eyre goes through a horrible school, becomes a governess, falls in love with her employer. I don't know. I don't want to spoil it, I guess. That's as far as I'm going. Hijinks <laughs> ensue. Mr. Rochester is the love interest in this case, just as close to the Duke of Zamorna as could be expected from her childhood. So that's as far as I'm going without spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> And even in that, there's spoilers. Well, the first string employees that read this, the ones that get a hold of the slush pile and have to fish through it, they were blown away. You know, send this to the boss. It's unusual to have such enthusiasm coming out of that office. And the owner, Mr. George Smith, was intrigued. Okay, okay, I will take it. I mean, stop talking. It's fine. I'm, I'll take it. And he took it home to read himself. And he started right after breakfast. And like the servants came and said lunch was ready. And he's like, bring me just a sandwich or something. He kept reading, kept reading, kept reading. Dinner came and he bagged on dinner and then he read it all the way through and by bedtime. Wow. He could not think more highly of this book that had enraptured him. And I mean to tell you, before the long ago accepted Wuthering Heights or Agnes Gray ever even got published, here comes the man with a little parcel for the author of finished Jane Eyre books. <gasps> and the publisher sent a review copy to one of Charlotte's heroes, William Makepeace Thackeray, author of Vanity Fair, which was just published that year. And he couldn't get enough. He wrote to the publisher and he said, I'm very sad that you sent me this book. My editors are waiting for copy that I'm not producing because <laughs> I'm obsessed. <laughs> but he also said, this is obviously a woman. I'm like, how did you... How did you know she was a woman? That's the thing I didn't understand. But he was very determined. Like, tell her I said this was great. <laughs> yeah, it, it even made him cry. Some of the love passages made him cry, he confessed. <laughs> That's like the ultimate compliment for a writer, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> if you can bring up that much emotion to make someone have to cry. Especially someone in the business who's kind of jaded. I yeah, think. there should be no surprises for him. And yet he was surprised. So, Charlotte took up her book and went into Papa's study and said, I've been working on something. I'm sort of proud of it. And I would like to show it to you. And um, I would like to kind of tell you that it's going to be okay. And his response was, children, Charlotte has been writing a book and it's better <laughs> than I might have expected. <laughs> Their house has been book central <laughs> for how long now? And he just, just learns. That's how disconnected he was from their lives. And these are people in their 20s and 30s, and he's calling them children. He was oh. a quirky fellow. That's all I'm going to say. Well, Jane Eyre went through its first printing lickety split. And uh, in its second printing, Charlotte felt like she had to address some criticism that had come out about the story. And she addressed in the preface that is new to the second edition, quote, the carping few who criticized the work as immoral and an injury to piety. And then she, she yelled at them a little bit. You believe anything unusual is wrong. Conventionality should not be mistaken for morality. The book was actually titled Jane Eyre, an autobiography, which it really wasn't. And yet it was because all those emotions she had experienced it's one time or another in her life. So she's experiencing something the people are saying is wrong. Of course, she's going to come to her own defense. I'm with her. 
she made an error. In this same second edition, she decided to dedicate the book to her hero, Thackeray, since he had loved it so much. But this gesture backfired spectacularly because of the unbelievable coincidence that I'm not sure she knew. No. That his wife had gone mad and been committed to an insane asylum. And the theme of his own story, Vanity Fair, was a governess marrying her employer. So the buzz went out. Currer Bell is Thackeray's former governess. This is spicy. (laughs) Disconcerting. Especially after her having written that careful preface. Like, this is, in fact, a moral tale. You needn't be so supercilious. You you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of a bummer. That that kind of got misinterpreted so badly, but she didn't know. Well, one thing she had, she had an income now. She had some networking. People in the business started writing her notes. She had industry respect. People started sending her preview copies of other books. We would love to know your opinion about this. It had already been made into a stage play. I mean, this is like instant fame. Yeah, and of the widest variety. I mean, it's being published in America within the first year. In contrast, Branwell, her lifelong rival, had gone further downhill. They're almost like they're on a teeter-totter. One goes up, the other one has to go to the bottom. Mm-hmm. He was emoing it up around the house, spending money he didn't have. The agents were always at the door with dunning letters. He had developed an opium habit on top of his difficulties with drink. And the sisters, especially Charlotte, were less and less sympathetic to his difficulties. With all of his advantages of having been male, having been educated, and the apple of his father's eye, Charlotte actually once said that her father loved Branwell more than all five of his daughters put together. How true that is, I don't Mm. know. Anyway, he hadn't lived up to even the most minor of expectations. And you know what, though? I was thinking about this. In his defense, it's probably really hard to have the whole weight of the whole family rest on your shoulders. Like you have at one point five unmarried sisters and you're the only one that can provide a life for them. Mm -hmm. And he was a creative. So it wasn't like his father who said, I am going to go into the ministry. And he focused on that. Branwell's mind was going all over the place. I can be a portrait painter. I can be a poet. I can be a writer. I can work at the railroad. I mean, he was all over the place with his jobs. So he just had no focus in his defense. Uh, Is that defense or is that a responsibility of his father to have taught him instead of saying, go be amazing. God has given you these gifts. Go, go. Well, who's to say? Who's to say at what point the parent has to stop being blamed for something? I don't know. I really don't know. Poor Branwell. I just don't know. He's a mess. He's a mess. But he doesn't have to take care of his sisters because you know what? Sisters are doing it for themselves. (laughs) Because (laughs) Anne's and Emily's books finally came out and were well received, very well received. Although Wuthering Heights scared the pants off people, I think. Uh, It's so (sighs) wild. It's so wild. And all Bronte works whiff of improperness. All of them do. And you know why? Because they had Byron in their head at an early age. (laughs) Uh, And we're free to be you and me with the natural children and and whatnot. They put their emotions into words. I mean, they were just honest. Mm -hmm. And girls and young women have these thoughts. And to hide them is doing them a grave disservice. Well, so at this point, though, they think it's three piratical brothers writing this. So Mm -hmm. it's like a little bit like, whoa, this scandalous, but it's not shocking, you know, because it's menfolk Mm -hmm. writing these books. Well, so Anne's and Emily's books came out so much later that Charlotte's like, you should just come to my publishers. Ladies, he's awesome. His name is George Smith. He'll take care of you. They're fast. And yours is obviously not working 
working in your best interest, your first editions came out with all the spelling errors still in them. In fact, Anne's publisher was very unethical with her second book. She had written a second book called The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, and he sent that to America and marketed it as if it were Currer Bells. He wanted to hook onto the popularity of Jane Eyre and was tricking people. He was so good at it, he tricked George Smith. And George Smith is saying, wait, Currer Bell has a new story. We were supposed to get the rights to any future novels. Why have we not seen this? So he sends off a letter to Charlotte, who is the middle person in this whole situation, and says, what's going on here? This is ridiculous. Why would you abandon us like this? I thought we treated you well. Is there something you need to tell us? Like, oh my God, no. Charlotte was appalled. And so Charlotte and Anne had to do something they were very, very uncomfortable with. They had to make the long journey by themselves to the big bad city of London and prove to Charlotte's publisher that A, Anne had written that book, The Tenant of Wildville Hall, and that Anne was a separate person from Charlotte. Acton and Curra are not the same people. And this whole thing isn't our fault. And please don't be mad. She convinced George by just handing him her letter, the letter that he had written to her asking what was going on. She's like, this might explain things. And it just took him a while to wrap his brain around it that these two meek women wrote these wonderful books. To say they were in shock when they expected these young James Bonds with pinky rings and (laughs) ladies' men with style. And here were these country ladies with old dresses holding each other's arms in anxiety. Like, what? What? (laughs) And they were so about letting the cat out of the bag. This, whoo, all these adult themes coming out of these ladylike heads. The contrast is going to sell us some books, boy. Um, (laughs) Man. In fact, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall actually came out while they were in London. Don't let your daughters read it. Yeah. Oh, we are going to capitalize on this. This is going to be excellent. But they were adamant. The sisters were. The secret has to stay in. I mean, we can't. We're unmarried women. We have to protect our reputations, which unfortunately for George Smith, any respectable Victorian man, that was going to be like, oh, okay, end of story. I mean, much to my grave disappointment, I get you, you know. But he did treat them to a behind the scenes, all expenses paid tour of London. The least I can do, ladies. I mean, crisis completely averted. He was averted, diverted, all about it. <laughs> it was good. I have to say, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, I really love. And it's not a book that people typically read. And if you read about it now, you're like, what was so saucy that you couldn't let your daughter read it? Well, in it, this wife is running and hiding from her abusive husband and a guy is helping her. So I think that might be it. There's a guy and he's not married to her and he's in love with her. I think that's all it takes. I mean, there's not any Anything racier than shades that. of gray or yeah. anything. Nothing. Well, these books were all, I mean, received with people who were like shocked. And of course, that did help sell books just like Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm -hmm. And we read them now. And at this point, that stories have become tropes. But back then, they were fresh and new and very controversial, which sells books. Okay. Well, so I even hate to start on this next period of Charlotte's life. So let's take a few seconds to have all the sisters bask in the joy of accomplishment.
dear. Okay, here we go. That whole summer, Branwell had been unwell. And maybe it was hard to tell between his usual state, honestly, and what was happening. But by the fall after Charlotte's trip to London, it was clear that he was gravely ill. It turned out um, tuberculosis, consumption, the same disease that had killed their older sisters all those years ago and for which there was no cure. And so he died. Surrounded by his whole family in September, the year Charlotte was 32, and their complicated and I guess I can call it turbulent relationship really came over her like a wave. It seems like she was conflicted. She called his death a mercy and wrote he'd wasted his empty life and squandered his gifts. But still, he'd been her close companion throughout her whole childhood her co-author, her imagination partner. Mm -hmm. And she stopped work on her novel in progress and just walked around in a daze. Worse still, Emily had developed a bad cough. Nonsense, Emily. (laughs) Emily (laughs) is something else. She was the housekeeper. She's doing her thing. Whatever you, Molly. I'm not sick. I'm fine. I love (laughs) Emily so much. She would not hear of medicine, of beds, of people's worries, you know, take that face off your head. I'm fine until the very last moment. And her last words were, if you will send for a doctor, I will see him now. Way too late. She was dead in two hours. Only four months after Branwell's death, Charlotte wrote of her sister, while physically she perished, mentally she grew stronger than we had yet known her. Day by day, when I saw with what a front she met her suffering, I looked on her with an anguish of wonder and love. I've seen nothing like it. But indeed, I've never seen her parallel in anything. She was stronger than a man. She was simpler than a child. And her nature stood alone. Okay, that made me cry. The love in those words. And then, I'm sorry to say, friends, Anne began to cough with the same cough that Emily had had. And unlike Emily, Anne accepted and um, welcomed any treatment anyone offered her or any comfort. I have to say Anne is my favorite Bronte, by the way. She seems like someone, well, she's She's more amiable than anybody else, for one. She was the person that was actually raised by Aunt Branwell. Mm -hmm. I think she's the person that was the littlest when that household got disrupted. And so she didn't face the disruption. She just always knew Aunt Branwell and Papa, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. And she slept in a room, I think, for most of her childhood. She slept in Aunt Branwell's room. So anyway, she might have just had a better start. But uh, so for a few months, Charlotte's whole attention was all in this sister. But I have to tell you, there's not much to be done for her. Charlotte, on the advice of a doctor, but quite reluctantly, took her to the sea for a change of air. That's a Hail Mary, I have to say. Just the last thing the doctor could think of. But when I think of this girl traveling with this illness and exposing herself to a resort area, I know they didn't know it at the time, but all the people that she exposed herself to. It's kind of terrible. Oh, you mean she was like typhoid and Bronte? Yes. She has tuberculosis and she's traveling. It's in her every time she coughs. It's in the air. It could mm. do it. Get anybody else. Yeah. They didn't know. So. Right. And sea air was supposed to be really good for people with respiratory illnesses. And she was like, okay, let's try this. And so they went to this resort. Anne had been there with the family that she'd been the long-term governess for. And she really had liked it. And let's go to Scarborough, she said. And they got there and only had a couple of days of sea air when Anne, age 29, died suddenly while they were on this vacation. 
She's buried all alone of all the siblings in the town where she died. If you ever visit Haworth, you'll note her absence in the cemetery. And this is the reason why, because she died on her rescuer Mm -hmm. and they left her there. Well, they buried her. (laughs) That sounds harsh. They didn't just leave her in the room. I mean, they had a funeral for her. No, see, I'm not, I'm not that, um, as far as I'm concerned, they left her. You know? Okay. So, I mean, that seems like the most horrible thing to me. Everyone else, I know, and I don't even believe in life after death or whatever, but like all the memorials are in one place. All the thoughts are concentrated in one place and then they just left Anne somewhere else. I don't know. I think it's kind of horrible, but whatever. (laughs) I I think it's horrible that three Bronte siblings died within eight months and two of them died without ever having um, public accolades for their literary accomplishments. They're still Acton and Ellis. What I'm saying is that Emily and Anne were never acknowledged for their contributions to literature. Oh, yes. Well, neither was Branwell, but since he didn't have any. Yeah, exactly. That worked out. Well, yeah. um, so golly. So I think we can imagine how Charlotte was feeling. She wrote a year ago, had a prophet warned me how I should stand today. I should have thought this could never be endured. It's horrible. I don't even know what to say about that. Her whole family is just gone. There's Papa and there's her. Mm-hmm. And after a certain amount of very understandable flailing, Charlotte found some degree of solace in finishing her work in progress, a novel she had begun already called Shirley, though what she missed grievously was the way that she and her sisters would sit around that table and they would bounce ideas off each other. Someone was always pacing around or tearing their hair out or, you know, <laughs> uh, you'd have the comforting scritch of pens if it was all going well. It's all gone. She's by herself. When the book came out, it was suddenly apparent to critics that she was a woman. And I'm not sure how exactly. Well, There's- it's about two women that were very different and perhaps being able to explain these women like she did just outed her completely. She had um, originally intended for one of those characters to die. And that character was based on Anne and she just couldn't do it. So she ended up changing the character's fate and she didn't die. And she got married and had a very happy ending, something that, you know, obviously Charlotte couldn't do for a sister in real life. That must have been really therapeutic. Right, right. But the news, of course, was out in the newspaper. It is understood that the only daughter, that hurts, of the Reverend P. Bronte, incumbent of Haworth, is the authoress of Jane Eyre and Shirley, two of the most popular novels of the day, which have appeared under the name of Currer Bell. So it is no longer rumor. It is no longer whispered at dinner parties. It's out there. And the procession of fame hunters began then to Haworth and the Parsonage and really hasn't ever stopped. That's true. I had never thought about that till the second. Well, so she met Thackeray at last, her big hero, though he introduced her to his own mama as Jane Eyre, which I've written Jane several times myself, actually. Oh, in my head? Totally confused. Yeah. I had a really hard time with that. I'm like, oh, then there's a time when Mr. Ratchet. No, wait, that didn't happen to Charlotte. (laughs) I keep writing Jane when I mean Charlotte. Uh Society ladies were disappointed at her appearance and her shyness, I guess. She spent the evening in the corner speaking to the governess. Now, wouldn't that be her peer? I think totally natural, though not done with a capital N-D. 
This was a period of time when she could just not bring herself to write one dang thing. Home was uncomfy. Home was empty. Home was oppressive. She spent her time accepting invitations, which was very brave for someone with her temperament, just traveling, being a tourist, avoiding fans. (laughs) Her publisher, George Smith, took it upon himself to show her the sights of London. There was a little... uh suggestion that perhaps George had feelings for Charlotte because they were really good friends and he enjoyed showing her things and talking with her and, you know, things that a suitor would. It's believed that his overbearing mother, who he lived with, said, no, 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 you can't hang out with her. Everybody in her family has died from tuberculosis. Also, it could be a complete misinterpretation. I mean, she's his most favored client Mm -hmm. and he's a personable youngish man. Um, Isn't that kind of like the situation that she fled in Belgium, that somebody uh, admired her for her intellect and her abilities and she misunderstood the situation as being romantic? So you're saying that that's what happened again? Yeah, that's how I'm taking it. Totally innocent. He is not predatory in any way. I just think the way that you treat your bread and butter, um, Mm -hmm. who happens to be intelligent and nice to talk to, um, I, I could see how that's completely innocently misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I'm not entirely sure there ever was a reciprocal relationship there. That's all I'm yeah. saying. She did get an opportunity to write something that was really important to her. She was going to write the introduction to Wuthering Heights and Agnes Gray for the next edition. She was able to introduce the world to her sisters who had created this work. She said, for strangers, they were nothing. For superficial observers, less than nothing. But for those who had known them all their lives in the intimacy of close relationships, they were genuinely good and truly great. She got to say, these are my sisters' world Love them because they were amazing. However, in this essay, which is officially titled Biographical Notice of Ellis and Acton Bell, we'll provide you a link in her haste and zeal to paint her sisters in a, in a much more angelic, perhaps not very human light for posterity, might have done Anne a disservice. And I certainly don't think she meant to. But when she was asked to go through her sister's old works and kind of update the new edition with no typographical errors with her own publisher, she agreed to do so for Wuthering Heights and for Agnes Gray. But Charlotte Bronte would not go through Anne's other novel. She declared that the tenant of Wildfell Hall should not be reissued. And so that book, which actually had sold faster in its first edition than Jane Eyre had its first edition and was quite popular in its own time, was largely forgotten. The reason that Charlotte gave for her disdain for this book is she said the choice of subject was an entire mistake. Nothing less congruous with the writer's own nature could be conceived. She had, in the course of her life, been called on to contemplate, near at hand and for a long time, the terrible effects of talents misused and faculties abused. What she saw sank very deeply into her mind. It did her harm. So what I'm taking from that is that Charlotte believed that the tenant of Wildfell Hall was largely about Branwell, and she did not want that to go forward. I don't know what else to say about that. So... Basically, she 
caused that book to be erased for nearly a decade until it was reissued. And by that time, the momentum was gone. And so you'll hear Charlotte Bronte, big name, Emily Bronte, big name, the also ran Anne. In their time, Acton and Ellis were equal partners in the fame. But alas, over time, Anne has become significantly the lesser. And perhaps we have Charlotte Bronte to thank for that, unfortunately. Now, there is a writer named Elizabeth Gaskell, who she was able to develop a very reciprocal relationship with, unlike that with George Smith, who was most famous for a novel. I think now we know her as the author of North and South, not the miniseries starring Patrick Swayze, by the way, <laughs> about the American Civil War, which was awful confusing um, before I had read North and South. It's, um, it's about the wool industry. So anyway, there it is. Another woman writer, finally. A person who's been there, a person who is currently there. Um, we've always liked Jane Austen. You know, she's been our heroine, our example, but Jane Austen's been gone a long time. She's not someone I could talk to and ask about the perils of being a woman writer. So it's a relief to have someone in her life like that. And it was years, though, before Charlotte began work on her next novel called Villette, more autobiographical than the autobiographical Jane Eyre, for sure. You'll see it if you read it now, after you hear our show, especially with your uh, thoughts on her time in Brussels. The main character, whose name is Lucy Snow, teaches at a school in Brussels, and there's unrequited love between Lucy and the master of the school. I think there's also unrequited love between a stand-in for George Smith. Oh, are you saying that this is the source of those speculations? Maybe. I didn't think about that. Maybe. Yeah, there are other recognizable characters from life with a happier ending than really happened. So Papa's assistant, Arthur Bell Nichols, who has popped up a couple times in this story already, approached Charlotte in a high state of anxiety one day. All day he'd been sort of a weirdo, which happened to me too. Chris was going to propose. I thought we were breaking up because he was so weird. (laughs) So here Mr. Nichols is, quote, shaking from head to foot, looking deadly pale. He spoke of suffering. He had borne for months and craved leave for some hope. Hope of marriage, which I didn't, huh? You know, said Charlotte, (laughs) didn't know that was going on. I mean, evidently, he'd had feelings for her, which went deep that she didn't comprehend. Like, she was George Smithing him. (laughs) And she asked him for a day to consider. But when he left and she went into the next room to talk to Papa, all hell broke loose. Another unexpected reaction, as far as I'm concerned. Papa worked himself into a state. She said the veins in his temples stood right out from his head. His eyes became bloodshot. He let fly with a string of curses. Like, what is happening to everyone in my orbit right now? Um, He pressured Charlotte to refuse Mr. Nichols. And the house got real awkward because Mr. Nichols lived in it. And Charlotte's in the middle. And her... Papa started treating Mr. Nichols like crap. Which wasn't good because at this point, Arthur Nichols was taking care of him. I mean, this is the only reason he still had a job is because Arthur was doing all the work. That's the curate's lot, though, I will tell you. So it's not unusual, but yeah. (laughs) No, No, I understand that. But it's just like... I didn't. Did you understand why he said no? Okay, so I have a theory. Um, There's the worldly theory, which the world could accept. He's just after your money. Her fortune from her writing right before her marriage actually 
was approximately $200,000 in today's money. So that's no small change. I could see that, whatever. But I don't think that's the real reason because he was so anxious. She's his last child left. He doesn't have any more. We've talked about this in the show a lot about mortality rates. Once you get pregnant, it's like a rolling the dice and it's not a good outcome. And I think he's like, of all the things I didn't think I had to worry about, it was my daughter dying in childbirth. You know, I seriously think that's what's making him pop off. Like, I don't think it was Nichols. I think he wanted her to marry no one. Ah, okay. I can see that. I don't know why he was so emotional about it. Maybe because it like it took her off guard. Maybe it took him off guard too. And, you know, sometimes people, they just react without giving it any thought. And that was the anxiety of that reaction is what she was reading. I don't know. It got so bad, though, that Mr. Nichols finally just had to move out because it was too much. It was just too much. And Charlotte at first was very sympathetic with her father about this. But as time went on and his tantrum continued, kept mumbling under his breath and stomping. His tantrum was really getting on her nerves. And she would never say this to her papa, but that's kind of selfish. That's kind of, it's not your life, you know? And when you die, this house goes and then I'm for myself. So mm-hmm. you're telling me that you don't want me to have security in the future by not wanting me to marry anyone. And here's this opportunity. You've known this guy for seven years. Mm-hmm. It's not like he showed up on the door like that one guy with the teacup. <laughs> so I think she got a little bit like, what is happening? But right here, right at the bottom of Charlotte's relationship with her father, which has been very good for the rest of their whole lives, unfortunately, right here with him mumbling and slamming doors is when Elizabeth Gaskell met Papa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so her vision of Papa, which was not that positive, has stretched through time as the true picture of what he was like. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Elizabeth Gaskell wrote the definitive biography. More on that later. So her word, her impression was sort of how Mr. Bronte has been pictured for a long time until very recently. Mm. I'm just saying it was bad timing. (laughs) Really bad. So Papa hated Mr. Nickel as a love interest. And so did Charlotte's best friend, Ellen. And I think this was selfish too. It wasn't so much that she hated Mr. Nichols. It was more like, I thought us single ladies were going to get old together. Don't Mm -hmm. ruin up my life. No, that one I could see. Totally. That was an easy one to see. Husbands are boring. They're going to just try to control you. I mean, all of Victorian men folk are going to control you. So in that regard, she wasn't wrong. Anyway, so there it is. It's Charlotte and um, Mr. Nickel against the world, really. And Charlotte really herself isn't even on board yet. Oh my gosh. Can we please take a break from all of this drama? Because guess what? My book's coming out. Yay. So (laughs) Villette came out. It was published. Yay. And people kind of tore it up. (laughs) It's cynical and it's bitter said people. Well, yeah, she kind of wrote it in a cynical and bitter place. I was going to read Thackeray's review, but I think I'm not going to dignify it with enough attention. He wrote a letter to one of his friends in which, I'm sorry to say, he mocked Charlotte Bronte for an autobiography that includes her being in love with two men at once. Are you kidding me? Her? That? 
little mousy thing? I don't think so. Pretty ladies with red boots and all kinds of other things that are going to catch the men, not this person. I don't know what kind of fantasy world she's living in. It was not very good. I'm glad she never read it. I'm glad she never heard of it because I think it's gross. That was bad enough just telling what was in it. (laughs) I agree with you 10,000%. Okay. Can I read the good review? Because I don't want, yeah. Mm. How about this? Some critics really, really, really loved it. In passion and power, those noble twins of genius, Currabelle has no living rival. Hers is the passionate heart to feel and the powerful brain to give feeling shape. And that is why she is so fascinating. Yeah. So gross about the bad reviews. People now know who she was and they just couldn't manage to separate the writer from her characters. They just made fun of her. Uh, Time did a good job, though, of raising the general opinion of Villette. I doubt, honestly, that non-Bronte superfans have ever even read it. I'm going to confess I hadn't even heard of it before I started this. I knew she wrote um, Jane Eyre and Shirley, but that was it. That's where my library stopped. (laughs) People say it's too full of rage and maybe that's what needed to come out of Charlotte. Well, the public is a fickle beast anyway. You know, what have you done for me lately? So you know who is not a fickle beast? Mr. Nichols, he persisted, <laughs> not in a creepy way, not in a, like he's not like looking at her from the corner all the time or anything, <laughs> but he's just kind of steadfastly there. He's patient in the distance and her feelings seem to have gradually warmed to him. And I don't know if the fact that George Smith got married to a pretty socialite affected her. That's perhaps unworthy speculation. Possible. And it's possible she looked at herself and she said, I'm 37 years old. I don't have much. And this guy makes me happy. What a gift. Yeah. Although she did write some kind of curt notes to her friends. Like, I guess this is what I'm doing. You know, (laughs) maybe it was her head and not her heart. She would say things like, he has served seven years for me. I don't know who else would do that. Well, anyway, about a year and a half after the first proposal and after a very interesting prenup. She and her papa arranged legally that all of her fortune would go to papa and not to Mr. Nickel in the event she died without children, which was pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Because oh, yeah. technically when you got married, your wife's property became yours. He agreed to it immediately. Like, that's fine. No problem. Which leads me to believe he was never a fortune hunter. Mm-mm. Oh, I never thought that at all. Charlotte and Mr. Nichols were married. And she wrote, it has cost me a great deal to come to this. That doesn't sound very romantic. (laughs) At the last possible moment, I have to say, and I want to give him a smack across his face, Papa dug his heels in and said he wouldn't come to the wedding. So as a last minute substitution, a former employer, the principal of the first school where Charlotte ever taught, walked Charlotte down the aisle instead of her own father. It was a sparsely attended wedding. Ellen Nessie, despite her disapproval of the groom and the state of marriage in general for her friend group, was there. And Mr. Nichols had a friend there. And otherwise, it was pretty low-key. Charlotte and Arthur honeymooned in Ireland. And that's where she discovered that he wasn't like wealthy, wealthy, but he came from a well-heeled family. She met his relatives. And some of the revelations that came are very nice to me, I think. She wrote, 
My dear husband appears in a new light in his own country. More than once, I've had deep pleasure in hearing his praises on all sides. The old servants, the followers of the family tell me I'm the most fortunate person. I've got one of the best gentlemen in the country. I pray to be enabled to repay as I ought the affectionate devotion of a truthful, honorable, unboastful man. I love that. So sometimes you might fall in love or at least like after the wedding, I assume, It happens a lot more when you marry someone you only know from a tea party. (laughs) Or it's an arranged marriage. Mm -hmm. So when they got home, they all lived in the parsonage together again. And Papa stayed in his study. Was he sulking or resting? I don't really know. And I don't really care. But Charlotte (laughs) was sort of reveling in this. Her whole life just changed because she's the wife of the curate. There were visits, both paid and received. There was charity to do. There was fundraising. There's all kinds of correspondence to keep up. And she seemed to be content with Mr. Nichols. She she keeps writing to people every day. My feelings for him are stronger. And her world, though, sort of compressed. She didn't write to London anymore. The whole correspondence with George Smith was gone. She did write a little, but she didn't have a lot of time. The beginning of a book that was to be called Emma, which reminds me of that book, um, who wrote it? A Little Princess. Do you remember that book from childhood? Is that the one where the girl thinks she's an orphan and then finds out that... Yeah. Okay. Rich man drops his daughter off at boarding school and then he disappears and then yes. the, the money goes. And that's as far as she got, really, into that story. And we've seen breaks before. I mean, it took years to write Valette. So the fact that she didn't work, she's a newlywed. She's got stuff to do, you know. Um, Anyway, so I I wouldn't read too much into the fact that she stopped writing. People say like, and then she stopped forever because she became a housewife. Mm, I just think it's a break. I mean, it would have been a break. That's a tiny spoiler. (laughs) As a writer who gets a lot of her material from her life, she has to live that life to understand how it feels. So this is research time on some level for her. Maybe her next story was going to be one of domestic bliss. Right, right. Yeah. Um, One thing I don't like, this seems very nice, but I don't like the fact that Mr. Nichols suddenly objected to Charlotte's chatty letters to Ellen. Yeah, that raised my eyebrow too. He told Charlotte to demand that Ellen burn her letters after she read them. Otherwise, he's going to stand over her and censor them himself. What Mm -hmm. did that come from? Maybe he realized that Charlotte was going to be writing about him and he didn't want his legacy like that either. I don't know. You know, I've seen it excused as he realized how famous she was and didn't want a whole bunch of her private chit chat to be floating around in the world Uh, seems like a big excuse to me. So I don't like it. It was very Victorian. Nevertheless, Charlotte dutifully wrote to Ellen, you need to promise him and writing that you're going to burn it. And Ellen just wrote back, I hear you don't like this, Chach, whatever. I promise I'm going to burn him. And then she crossed her fingers and never did anything of the sorts, which is good (laughs) for us because now we have them all. Mm -hmm. She didn't marry him. He's not the boss of her. Why should she do what he says? That's ridiculous, especially at a distance, whatever. So I'm with her. (laughs) Within six months, Charlotte was pregnant. Finally, a baby. This is wonderful. Unfortunately, right from the very beginning, she had severe morning sickness. It was 
not getting better over time. She wasn't eating anything. She was vomiting all day long. She was getting weaker and weaker. And eventually delirium started to set in. They think she might have had a condition that you might be more familiar with because Kate Middleton, that was the Duchess of Cambridge, Mm -hmm. also suffered from it at least in two of her three pregnancies where you vomit like 50 times a day. Amy Schumer had it too. She just delivered a baby. So it is uh, quite serious and quite alarming and can be treated, but not completely eliminated. Even in modern day, my neighbor had to wear anti-nausea drip around her waist. It's serious. Mm -hmm. But in Charlotte Bronte Nichols' case, it was three months of dehydration and starvation, and it led to her death. On March 31st, 1855, she was only 38 years old. She was buried by her mother and brother and three of her sisters. Her friend, Elizabeth Gaskell, after the dust had settled, begged to be allowed to write a biography. And I cannot believe Mr. Nickel let her papers go. Cannot believe it. I think there was some pressure from Mr. Bronte to have a legacy, although he was pretty sad about the way he turned out. Elizabeth Gaskell's book, I guess, turned Charlotte into an angel and Mr. Bronte into sort of a tyrant. Um, Ellen's unburnt letters became a major source of information. But The Life of Charlotte Bronte, the book, came out two years after Charlotte died. And so she kind of became painted, as did the other Brontes, as victims of this tragic life in this horrible, isolated place, instead of just intelligent strivers, contrivers, doing what they can to get along in the world, taking the reins into their own hands and writing, using their Mm -hmm. talents. Nope, they were just thrown into this well of dark wind and... They were just these innocents flung into a bear pit where men brawled in the streets and they had to retreat for safety and stay all shut up in the parsonage and become this very insular and odd family group. Medium true. It just became a little bit more dramatic than it needed to be. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not coincidentally, about two years after her death, her first novel, the one that was rejected by every single publisher in London, was published posthumously. Mm -hmm. So the timing of those two books reeks of marketing. (laughs) Oh, we're so cynical. I know. The Bronte Society formed 38 years after her death, collecting, preserving sharing relics of the Brontes, but it took until the late 1920s to actually get their hands on the house. A rich man bought it and donated it to the Bronte Society, and it is now a museum where millions of visitors have made the pilgrimage to see her house and her grave and Haworth Village. It's one of the most visited literary sites in the world. And that brings us to the end of the life of Charlotte Bronte. And now it is time for media. And as usual, we will begin with books. Now there, I'm just going to open with a book that you have to be committed because it is heavy. I mean, you could press flowers with this in a moment. It is like two and a half inches tall. It's called The Brontes by Juliet Barker. Now that is the most complete knowledge you will ever need to know. Detail has been gone into. If you like The Brontes that much, that actually is a very good book, but you're going to have to put in some time. (laughs) <laughs> you got to put in the work to get to know the ladies. That's um, funny. For a less daunting, um, equally readable book, I would recommend Charlotte Bronte, A Fiery Heart by Claire Harmon. As would I. 
I have two that are a little bit, they're not exactly biographies. They're like to the side a little. So I'll just drop those out and then I'll let you go on with your biographies. But um, I have The Bronte Cabinet, Three Lives in Nine Objects by Deborah Lutz, which reminds me a little bit of the um, British Museum's The History of the World in 100 Objects. So I really liked the concept of that book. And then The Brontes, A Life in Letters, edited, I guess, by Juliet Barker. I had so many books that I actually got to narrow them down to my favorites. That doesn't happen very often. Right. My true favorites. The Bronte Cabinet, Three Lives and Objects, was my absolute favorite Bronte book. If you have to read one book, I would read that one. Because you learn about the Brontes, but you learn about their culture and things that are going on in their world. That was my favorite. And for the same reason, it did kind of remind me of um, History of the World and 100 Objects. There is a surprisingly thorough YA book called The Bronte Sisters, The Brief Lives of Charlotte, Emily, and Anne by Catherine Reef. The next favorite one that I had was The Bronte Myth by Lucasta Miller. It's kind of the next level up between A Fiery Heart, I think, and and your major tome there, which I didn't even (laughs) pick up (laughs) because I was like, I'm not going to get through that. (laughs) (laughs) The Secret History of Jane Eyre by John Fordreiser. If you love Jane Eyre and want to know what parts were Charlotte, this is a great book to compare the two, Jane and Charlotte. This is why she picked this particular book to show in Jane, because it was her favorite book as a little girl, that kind of thing. Really in-depth. I thought that was really cool. So the fact that these are authors, of course, all their books, you should read those. Uh, Especially, uh, I would say, Villette, because not very many people have read it. And it is sort of the inner autobiographical life of her emotions during her time in Brussels. And then also Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Might as well. It's not a a giant one. And uh, you can find it at least here on Libby or Audible and just give it a listen while you're doing something else. Um, So I would recommend that. And then there's a book that refers and actually includes some Bronte knowledge by Jasper Ford, which is two Fs, F-F-O-R-D-E, called Lost in a Good Book that combines science fiction and Jane Eyre. Basically, um, time travelers can jump in and out of books and interact with the characters in there. So, Oh my gosh, I want to read that one. There you go. That sounds great. Any more books? Oh, well, you can also read The Tales of Glasstown, Anglia, and Gondal have all been put together as one book that you can read and you don't have to have a magnifying glass. (laughs) And try to decipher the handwriting. And you can listen to, listen to the completed part of the fifth novel, Emma, on LibriVox for free. Uh, It's just a fragment. It's been completed twice by two different authors, and neither completion has received very positive reception. So I do believe there's still an opportunity. Oh, interesting. If there's anyone that wants to take that on. Hmm. As far as movies go... I got so confused because I was watching both Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre, like different versions of them. And the storylines started to get messed up in my head. It was not a good place. But I think your first one is your favorite one. So my first one was the 2006 BBC masterpiece with Ruth Wilson as Jane and Toby Stevens as Edward Rochester. That was on uh, streaming on both Hulu and Amazon. So as to movies that I like, I love to walk invisible. And I can't for the life of me remember if it was on Netflix or Amazon Prime. It's on Amazon Prime. Okay. I love um, that one too. Totally worth it. Man, the casting of Branwell made him 
identical. (laughs) Physically Mm -hmm. speaking, they got the right Branwell. And then kind of the way they portrayed him kind of as pitiful and not necessarily malicious, but just in the grip of addiction really kind of dovetails with my more generous view of him. Um, Yeah. So I liked that too. The casting of Emily could not have been better. I just loved it. So um, I thought it was going to be bleak and awful, but it turned out to not be at all. So highly recommend that. Yep. And it was filmed at Haworth. Now, I do recommend that at the very end, there's going to be like a written epilogue. Turn it off because your mind is back in 1800s with the Bronte family. And suddenly they're going to be showing you what Haworth looks like today. Like with people. Oh, yeah. I didn't like that. Like everyone's looking at shelves shopping for things. I'm like, what are we doing? Yes, I agree. So just it worked really well in Schindler's List when they went from the past to the present. It doesn't work for here, but everything about this production was amazing. And if there's I think if there's one thing you're going to do and you don't want to read that book, I would watch this series. So we have a link to the Oxford Dictionaries as to our pronunciation of Bronte. Um, Also, you can go to the Bronte Museum. We actually have received communication from them that they're at the museum. They say Bronte because that's public opinion. But however, everyone in town would have pronounced it Bronte. So... (laughs) You be the judge as to which way we go. I said, you're the final authorities. They're like, well, either way is perfectly fine. So there you go. Uh, Sometimes you just have to go to the source. And sometimes the source is very amiable (laughs) instead of, you know, producing a ruling. Yeah. (laughs) As to the Lowood School prototype that they were sent to as young girls, they believed in a doctrine called Calvinism. And I didn't want to get into it too much during the show, but just to kind of a little basis of you know, you're all sinners and you have to claw your way back to salvation kind of thing Mm -hmm. is how is what that school was based on. So in case you would like to fall down that particular rabbit hole, I will give you a link to that. And also all about Henry Nussie might as well, her first uh, reasonable suitor for her hands. Somebody wrote a dissertation on him. So I thought I might as well include that because we certainly did not go too far into him. Also, that painting, the famous painting that is in the National Portrait Gallery now was found folded up in quarters on top of a cupboard by Mr. Nichols's second wife after he died. Just folded in quarters, stuck on top of a thing, left to get dusty. All the paint has flaked off and that's why you can see the cross in it kind of because he did not think Uh it was a good representation of anybody. And he's like, forget this and just stuck it somewhere. So it could have been lost forever had she not determined that it was something that uh, posterity might wish to see. So yeah, Mm. there's a little article on the history of that painting. Yeah. And I wouldn't uh, accept any other things you see online as fact without digging into it a little bit more. I'm talking about uh, pictures of any of the Bronte sisters. There's always a little bit more of the story. It's like, oh yeah, we found this. So-and-so did it. And then there's so many of these where it turns out to be somebody totally different. Easy to get tripped up in Bronte land. (laughs) Also, the fact that, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to paint subjects long after they're 
dead. Like that happens with Anne Boleyn or the beheading of Lady Jane Grey was painted centuries after she died. It's not a representation of her face. It's a storytelling of her experience. You know, people paint scenes from the Bible all the time, thousands (laughs) of years after, you know. So sometimes it's not meant to deceive you, but it's not a portrait of a living person. You know what I mean? So, Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. When you go to the Bronte Parsonage Museum online and we'll link you up, there's a really good online tour. So not all of us can get to England. So if you can't, this is a really good way to peek around and see how things look for them or just watch it to walk invisible because it's filmed there. That is pretty cool. And then I was going to provide, I've got pictures on the Pinterest board of Anne's, she's not lonely. She's right in the middle of a whole bunch of other people, but Anne's lonely tombstone will not be found on the tour. So I will make sure to put a photo of it either in the show notes or on the Pinterest board. Oh, and I'm going to caption it left behind. Oh, sad. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't really have anything else. All right. And that should do it for our coverage on Charlotte Bronte with an able assist from Emily and Anne and an unable assist from Branwell. (laughs) We will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Over on Instagram, we have the hashtag History Chicks Field Trip going on to show and tell about all the trips we're taking over our summer vacations. Or if you are visiting any of your hometown museums, like we challenged you to during the Babe Diedrichson Zaharias episode, we would love to see those over in the lounge. What's the lounge, you say? It's a place you can go to chat with other listeners of the show. All you do is go to our regular old Facebook page and hit the button that says join group. Just answer one simple question to prove you're not a robot and you're in. It's the easiest test you'll ever take. (laughs) Otherwise, we would just like to thank James Harper, of Harper Active for the music he lets us use during the ad breaks. This particular one is called Pass Me the Salt. And the end song is Everybody on Your Block by Lily Wolf, used by special permission. Bankrupt and ashamed You stumble through the days Feeling deeply sentimental Kind of bored
put into it anecdotes that we would not know exactly like when the macaroni and cheese burned over and fred said blah 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 and grandma said that and threw it out the window <laughs> or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah.